0: You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Srivastava Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No Simplify funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions today. We've got Daniel Wan, the founder of Prerequisite Capital based in Australia. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is amazing to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, nice to join you. Yep, we're going through some interesting times, so it's awesome to get the opportunity to speak to you. So, now Daniel, could you just share a bit about your background, how you got into finance and sort of your journey to starting prerequisite capital?
1: Yeah, so uh, the really short version is uh, something like 20 years ago, I uh, was quite interested in how the world worked, markets, all of this sort of thing, uh, wanted to get straight into some sort of an investment firm or something out of high school, but couldn't. Um, went into accounting, started into university pretty quick into university. I realized I, or at least this is what I thought back then somewhat naively that I could do a better job, uh, educating myself than what the university could. So I fired the, un- fired the university, became a hermit, spent a few years, you know, with another box of books rocking up on the doorstep every few weeks, um, had to get back into the real world again. Um, long story short. I found there was a global macro hedge fund, uh, not too far away from where I was. Um, pretty much just called them up out of the blue and asked to speak to uh, the guy that was running it. Just said, "Look, you don't know me. Uh, I'd love to be doing what you're doing in 10 years' time. Um, can I buy your lunch, etc." He then, yeah, we caught up for breakfast, and and one thing led to another, and I became an analyst at that fund, and then. Everything sort of dominoed from there, and um, before you know it, uh, you know, we went through the, the financial crisis and, and different things. Uh, met some of my now business partners. Uh, we had a fairly common sort of view of the world, common set of values, all of this sort of thing, and kicked off prerequisite about nine years ago, uh, roughly. And yeah, and now we basically provide research and also we run very conservative sort of resilient investment portfolio mandates. Um, mostly the, the money that we run is here in Australia uh, and most of our research clients are actually around the world. Um, so, But it's the same sort of engine of research and insight that feeds everything we do um, and so that's the short version of of how I got here, so to speak.
0: Oh, that's awesome, and you know the fact that you, know, you just called up a global macro hedge fund in Australia, and you know, I just got a job for them. I think that's that, that is amazing. Um, yeah, so you know, I guess the number one thing that everyone's thinking through is this whole Russia-Ukraine situation. So you know, how are you thinking about it, um, both from a geopolitical standpoint as well as you know the market dynamics that you know the way the, uh, the situation progresses implies.
1: Yeah, so um, so we've been watching leading indicators of growth and inflation deteriorate for the better part of last year, um, and now this year. And at the end of last year was oh, depending on how you define a coincident indicator and data sets of growth and inflation, uh, but particularly growth, it's been sort of uh, decelerating for a little while now, even ahead of coming into all of this turmoil this year. Uh, And even, um, you know, for quite a while now or the last several quarters, you know, we've seen accelerating capital flows into uh, particularly the U.S. And it's a a fairly um, consistent story. Capital out of China, for example, um, kicked off fairly uh, early last year. Um, And then more recently at the turn of this year, we started to see money moving into um, Switzerland which usually sort of makes you sit up and pay attention, especially with geopolitical sort of dynamics escalating. Yeah. Uh, some of our leading indicators on geopolitical risk that's, you know, that is or isn't priced into the capital markets in the world, um, the, legal, uh, the leading indicators were anticipating escalating geopolitical risk this year. Um, and so we'd kind of been observing that. And also the fact that there was almost no risk priced into markets relatively speaking relative to history in in capital markets last year so we're coming off cyclical lows um and so that set the backdrop and so now that things have actually started to manifest and uh you know everything's unfolding as it is um is what that's basically done or the the short the, the fastest way to understand what that's doing right now is it's causing a supply shock that is actually destroying demand through price right and so having for example uh, the most clear-cut example is just the price of oil um, you know escalating uh, as high as it has as fast as it has Um, that's that's effectively like a a massive tax hike out of the blue for the global economy that was already weakening um, basically or it's the equivalent of raking you know, having central banks uh, increasing interest rates by a massively significant margin um, out of the blue. And so that sort of thing is just fast tracking a bit of a destruction in demand, basically, uh, initially through price. The problem is, is that we're seeing uh, liquidity. Well, liquidity was already starting to wane coming into this year uh, in markets. And positioning was fairly excessive in a lot of different markets as well, particularly like particularly in equities. And so we were kind of vulnerable as it was, and then as it all started to um, unfold, then that's just added further stress. Um, We still have uh, huge liquidity problems in the world right now, and that seems to be getting worse. We're starting to see credit risk really starting to be priced in with all the sanctions that are unfolding and effectively a sanctions war starting to gather pace. Yeah. will escalate in a really big way. That's just um, fast tracking all of these uh, dynamics, which are very negative for growth and demand, obviously. Um, And past the point, what we're actually seeing is early signs of a potential deflationary shock. Um, Because of the credit risk that's escalating, we've got increased risks of stranded capital around the world. Um, In the months to come, we have increased risks, especially because we're already coming into a decelerating growth environment increased risks of uh, miscalculation in the system being discovered or revealed Um, and that's usually where things get fun uh, from a market perspective Um, and so in a you know we're also an environment where you know volatility in bond markets and even currency markets has been escalating in such a rapid manner obviously we've seen the the volatility explosion in commodity markets but bond markets or fixed interest markets is is where it really matters in the world and secondarily to that currency markets because of the uh, the derivatives and the interrelationships uh, between systems that sort of triangulate in those two very big. um, sets of markets. Um, it's highly likely that there's you know things are blowing up or have blown up that are, are yet to come to the surface. Um, You know, we're seeing all of our gauges, uh, you know, conventional and unconventional credit risk in the world and and in different regions starting to increase or or explode. Uh, And in the context of, you know, hemorrhaging liquidity, mistrust, you know, people jumping at shadows, even in anticipation of possible sanctions and knock on effects, you know, China starting to get a little bit more um, unsettled, so to speak, uh, especially because they're obviously sitting back and watching all of this unfold and, and knowing full well that, you know, there are certain scenarios in the months and quarters to come, if things don't de-escalate, that they'll be in the crosshairs as well, you know, or getting tied up in things. And so, you know, you know for things to be growing and for things to be productively moving forward um, and for us to be producing things and cooperating, we need trust out there. And what we have is mistrust and and fear, you know? And so unfortunately there seems to be more signs that point towards escalation in geopolitical conflict or confrontation, Uh, more signs that point to escalation rather than de-escalation, unfortunately at the moment. And so that acts as a bit of a feedback loop towards more stress and pressure in the globalized system Um, and having you know the reality of the supply shocks sort of forcing uh, through price a, a destruction in demand you know it's it's quite a um a precarious sort of okay. set of conditions right. where we're sort of morphing into um and so we have echoes of a lot of different periods of history um in different ways and so yeah, now's the time to be a little bit more cautious than usual, and a bit more resilient. And you know, the, the flip side of all of this is that it's likely that there'll be you know lots of opportunities um, from an, a longer term investment point of view, uh, potentially coming down the pipeline in the next several quarters or the next couple of years. Um, and so that's that's I guess the the short the the synopsis, so to speak. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. And you know, definitely, you know, with that synopsis in mind, you know, I want to start you know, digging deeper into some of the themes you were talking about. And so I think the first one that I wanted to discuss was you mentioned um liquidity and how there were some liquidity problems that were slowly coming up to the surface. And so one, you know, when you think about liquidity, so how do you actually define liquidity? And, you know, what do you watch for? I mean, obviously you don't have to, you know, share like the specific uh, specifics, but you know, what do you watch for to analyze you know where liquidity is headed or you know where liquidity conditions are going and
1: yeah, so liquidity means different things depending on what part of the system you're looking right. at. Exactly. You know, yeah. So when it comes to markets, normally you're talking about like an order book depth, you know, how what, what is the size and bids and offers and the different right. depth of stack and but, and but it also refers
0: it. to like the Fed and the central banks coming in.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, then um, liquidity, you can sort of step back a little bit more broadly and define it as purchasing power or the ability to gain credit even um, and funding towards things. Because the the problem with studying liquidity as a concept is that you kind of can't define it, you know, like if you narrow down your... um, you know, your field of reference, say just two markets, for example, Well, maybe you can start to define it in terms of the order book depth, for example. Uh, but then as soon as you start to step back and, and step out and uh, take a broader view of the system that we're in, liquidity or money or credit or purchasing power takes a variety of different forms and, and it actually can come into existence and out of existence in such a multitude of different ways it's kind of ridiculous you know and when depending on how broad you define that uh, especially at the broadest possible level in the system you know the central banks of the world actually are net contributors, like their, their contribution to that broader pool of liquidity more broadly defined is is actually quite small still you know and the sources or Uh, of sources of liquidity where liquidity can come from and and also how it can be uh, sidelined or destroyed um uh, are far more varied and multiple they just go way beyond just the central banks in in the first instance and so even trying to define it is problematic you know and you know different people like jeff snyder will point out that you know the central banking community can't even define money anymore, or you know, you start to talk in terms of money supply and like, well, what does that even mean anymore? and And for decades now, you really have to take a broader view of these things uh, to to sort of wrap your head around it. And so we the other problem too, it's a little bit like trying to track capital flows in the world, right? It's not like you can bring up a ticker on Bloomberg and go, "Oh, the net." you know capital moving from here to there or into this region and like it's just not that simple and um, you know there's a lot of activity that happens which in substance is almost like money moving between nations but in reality is not really well captured in especially more conventional uh, economic type data sets and and you've kind of so the solution is is we need to triangulate things you know so we can't necessarily see the exact analysis target sometimes like um, capital flows between regions even can be kind of tricky to track unless you sit inside or somehow have transparency to you know pretty much non-public information in banking systems and you know central banks and commercial banks and and different things Um, for everyone else we kind of have to triangulate it so we can't precisely measure the the actual flow but we can see the effects both from this area and in this area and we can kind of triangulate around we know the principles of how you know liquidity or money you know comes into existence what drives it the behavioral characteristics the the nature of money and credit and some of the mechanisms of the banking and currency systems and so what we basically do is we have to we can see the effects which then betray what is actually going on in the analysis target and so we triangulate these things and it's kind of the same with liquidity uh, depending on what area you're focusing on so we have different measures for market specific measures of like underlying liquidity or in a sense like order book depth um, we also have others that are broader in nature and scope that try to get at the very core of what's going on in a globalized sort of manner um in with the globalized central and commercial banking system in aggregate, you know, trying to get a sense for what's going on there. And, and then there's sort of subsystems, like we have some frameworks for and some tools for the Eurodollar, more Eurodollar specific system. Like, and and even there, you know, we've kind of the last 12 to 18 months has been sort of quite abundant. Um sort of liquidity conditions in that sector relative to say the last 15 years of history but even there we're seeing all of those measures as of this year sort of peaking and showing the early signs of, of rolling over into tightening liquidity type conditions even in that's that system and so when we survey the world through a variety of different lenses and we try to make All of these observations more objective using data driven models and trying to reduce abstract concepts into objective data um, so to speak we can sort of when you're glimpsing the same sort of underlying phenomenon from a variety of different perspectives that are reliable and and unrelated and you're seeing the same picture emerge that starts to give you a greater degree of confidence uh, that what you're seeing is actually unfolding And then if what you're seeing is actually, you know, a core driver of things, everything else should be kind of a symptom of that, which, you know, so far it it all appears to be the case. And so, yeah, how do we look at liquidity? How do we think about it? I I spent, you know, 10, 15 years uh, running down rabbit holes, trying to evolve solutions for that. And many of them are quite practical. None of them are perfect. But when you put them all together, it starts to paint that three-dimensional picture. Um, So the other thing I realized, because liquidity can come, can arise and and be destroyed even from so many different sources in in the system, when it comes to being able to draw um, direct line of sight from, say, the banking system does this, that means liquidity does, you know, is doing this. And that means that has this effect on this market, for example, even if it's a major asset class. I find it's not that simple because there's such a variety of moving parts, you know, like people can just have a shift in preferences, for example, this versus this, and that will cause a tidal wave of liquidity in effect to shift from here to there, right? And that might not actually have anything to do with banking system type derived, you know, changes. And so I tend to find when you're talking about specific markets or asset classes you really need to drill down to their specific underlying liquidity conditions themselves because you can't always draw stable conclusions or relationships with banking system inputs or whatever it is Um, and you do tend to find that underlying liquidity you know it, it will reveal a strong condition or a weak condition under any given market and when you combine that with positioning information um, can be really helpful in identifying periods of risk or continuation of trend or change of trend uh, potentials and all of this sort of thing um, so yeah i don't know whether we've gone too far afield from uh
0: yeah and, uh, you know i think that was fantastic
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i think yeah. it was
0: fantastic but you know one thing that you did talk about was how we can use data to I've had these conclusions, and so you know, take a broader approach to that. One another concept that you mentioned was looking at parallels to cycles of history, and so you know, what we're going through right now, you know, what is the closest parallel to history that you've seen? And you know, you've heard my mentor Mike Green talk about the similarities with the Roman Empire, and you know, just wanted to get your thoughts on the the cycles of history that you know, the. <laughs> you know what we're going through you know how that's similar to various cycles of history and you know where you're where you're looking
1: yeah well you know like the old saying guy goes history never repeats but it rhymes right. um, and this is the thing there's such a multitude of potential parallels both in a financial sense um, and in a geopolitical sense um, to so many different periods the only exception is that we we are so this the issues we're dealing with right now is so globalized in scope and we have this backdrop from an economic financial perspective that is uh, more globalized than we'd, we'd ever really experienced in history normally up until the last 50 years you know there's still been some form of detached discrete systems that cobble together to form the world. Uh, the last 20 years, we've become so integrated, interconnected and interdependent um, and everywhere basically has gone through this uh, credit cycle like we've never really seen in history, especially on a, on a unified globalized basis that we have a backdrop that doesn't really have precedent in history, <laughs> not in that globalized sense. Um, unfortunately, in terms of like lessons and principles and patternings of, of history, or precedents we seem to be ticking a lot of the wrong boxes at the moment in terms of you know where the world might be headed in terms of geopolitical escalation and and conflict you know and unfortunately there's there's parallels to the lead up to world war one there's parallels to a variety of different fairly major confrontations um hopefully the dominoes keep don't keep falling in those directions, we get something to short circuit these different dynamics. Um, Having the weight of an untenable economic backdrop, unfortunately adds inertia to more problematic outcomes over the next 10 years, for example. Uh, But if we weren't so, you know, pushed to such extremes from an economic context point of view, then, Maybe we don't go, you know, as far down an unstable pathway as what we might be. So, yeah, I unfortunately, I it's very easy to see scenarios that are, are not fantastic for the world. And this competitive landscape that we're observing, I think is only going to get more competitive um, because there's too many systems societies nations that are just between a rock and a hard place uh, in terms of all of their excesses catching up with them you know and because it's very hard and and at the same time we've got policymakers and politicians everywhere disengaging market mechanisms or dampening market mechanisms and and eroding the rule of law that we kind of need to underpin trust and predictability and reliability in our system. That, that, that when you, you start to play games with those things, we make our system less productive and we actually pressure our living standards. Um, you know, so living standards rise when we're producing more and more abundance of useful goods and services in the world. But when we start to suppress or disengage market mechanisms, Um, and when we sort of deteriorate the quality predictability reliability uh, and even the fairness of the rule of law um, that strikes straight to the heart of you know living standards because we just can't produce in the way we can we can't invest in the way we can markets don't function to kind of keep the system healthy and clean and allocating resources where they need to go, rewarding good stewardship and and penalizing poor stewardship, et cetera, et cetera, and helping keeping the system healthy and moving forward and productive and and ultimately raising living standards and having a fair and just, you know, legal system. You know, anyway, so in white anting those things, you know, we're basically almost guaranteeing increased pressures towards decreasing living standards everywhere right uh, and when i say everywhere i mean like in most places the kind of matter in the world um in terms of that aggregate trajectory um and so decreasing living standards pressures towards, you know, productivity problems. Um, and when you disengage market mechanisms and or dampen or uh, disempower, when, when markets are unable to solve problems in the system, uh, then you start to have to escalate to political solutions or po- political systems to solve problems. And if that political system is a little bit gridlocked or dysfunctional or whatever, then that escalates to another level of uh, problem solving that's more akin to you know toddlers in bad moods um, and conflict escalates in in not good ways and so hopefully we don't keep heading down that path Um, but unfortunately the solution to all of our problems is actually the double down on what's causing the longer run problems anyway in disengaging market mechanisms and Creating more arbitrary rule of law and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, best to be uh, a little bit more resilient moving forward, upskill so you can adapt and take advantage of the opportunities that, unfortunately, uh, anyway, uh, it's just a, a fascinating world. And so the parallels with history, like your original question, are, um, you know, suggesting problematic times ahead unless we can somehow stop these dominoes falling uh, or these feedback loops from self-reinforcing. And right now, I can't see what's going to short circuit these things just yet, you know.
0: I uh, know, you know, as, as you laid, uh, initially as well, you know, when you know geopolitics as a whole has been a muted theme throughout yeah. the last decade. And, you know, going forward, it s- seems to be becoming increasingly more important. And, you know, number two, you know, as you mentioned the rule of law across the major countries starts to go down. Living to start to go down. And so, you know, within this, I guess, uh, framework of thinking, you know, how would you go about implementing this into a portfolio as an investor?
1: Yeah, so, um, so, just trying to think how we talk through this in the, the time frame, but so, most people are trained to think in terms of valuation, right? And in fact, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know, the conventional accepted wisdom, especially in even more elite type investment circles, was that geopolitics doesn't matter, right? Because we've had a period of time for the last 40 years up until maybe the last five years where you can be very successful in markets and investing ignoring geopolitical realities right and get away with it and so we've got this you know like I, I used to meet up with all these sort of older more successful guys and they'd explain to me why geopolitics just doesn't matter et etc cetera, etc cetera. and you hear it in the last five years has been a bit of a bit of a wake-up call to all of them that actually it does and all of these different things are going to play even more outsized importance than people realize Now, when we're early on in our our investment journey, normally we're learning about valuation concepts, right? Either of specific companies or assets or asset classes or whatever. Uh, But valuation concepts inherently, especially the way you then uh, outwork them in an investment portfolio, they have this implicit assumption or some sort of a mean reverting mechanism that's required to make it work. So when some asset is undervalued or an asset class is undervalued, you're supposed to allocate into that. And then inevitably, you know, it'll somehow mean revert. And that's where you make your money. And, and when it gets overvalued, well, you start to, you know, shy away from it and et cetera, et cetera. That's fantastic. And, and you do need to educate yourself into all of that. But that that assumes that we have functioning market mechanisms, right? That will force mean reversion that can actually cause all of this to actually function and over the last 50 years we've also had a backdrop of the world coming together more or less that globalization type thing functionally we've had a bit of a rule of law intact you know for the better part of 50 years you know increasingly globally even and so capital can freely move and there's there's mechanisms in place to be able to be confident that it'll be safe and secure and all of this sort of thing Uh, And then on top of it, you know, there's been demographic tailwinds, especially, you know, over this broader period of time, which are now starting to turn into headwinds. But we also had huge tailwinds in terms of a credit cycle, like a multi-decade generational credit cycle in the globalized world, like we've just never seen before. So any hiccup, any stumble or natural cycle in growth, that is a buy opportunity because you have got all these tailwinds that naturally mean revert it back to a trend level of growth or even higher because we've got this tailwind of credit creation and risk assumption and a, a cooperative international environment and, you know, new markets opening up and it's just all positive trust basically prevailing in the world more or less. Now we have basically the exact opposite where we've got credit saturation by most different measures. You know, and every new dollar of money or liquidity or credit that's created in all its different forms is producing less and less productive output or result. You know, so we've got credit saturation on the one hand, very fragile over indebted system to like heavily concentrated sort of system and power substructures as well. It's not a very diverse and resilient type footprint of a globalized economic system we have in the world. Um, Potentially... You know, we've got demographic headwinds in a lot of major countries. Um, And we've also promised more than we can ever deliver on as societies, you know. And so our future liabilities well exceed our capacity to actually produce and deliver on them. And so we've got a lot of problems and untenable like excesses that are kind of coming to the forefront. So in that sort of world, we can't really go back to a valuation investment paradigm we still pay attention to it as a bit of context on different things, but what's really going to matter is how the system actually adapts, right? And so it's more a case of you need frameworks that are more geared to following the money um, because there's going to be in trying to wrestle with all of these things and desperate policymakers that are getting more extreme, you know, every year or every few years, they come up with more and more extreme type versions to try and of what they do to try and stay in control and that's going to cause more and more dis- disorientated capital in the world, especially in the broader conditions that we've morphed into in recent months or escalated into. And so sometimes it will make sense why money moving in particular ways in the world or into some markets and, and away from others. Uh, but sometimes it won't. And, you know, the world is not a perfectly rational place, but there's a functional logic to it, right? More often than not. And so when you're seeing money moving in a consistent way or these capital flows in particular ways that might not at first glance make sense, it seems a bit counterintuitive when you sit back and go well why would there be this behavior in this system what's the functional dynamic that's driving this and causing this adaptation, so to speak, and then you can start to really understand the system in a deeper level. And then at the same time, instead of analyzing like the shares of Apple as if it's a, the stock of a company, let's start analyzing it as if it was a currency like the Japanese yen. And so when you analyze a currency, you're analyzing flows, you're analyzing sentiment, positioning, right? And different dynamics like that, because that's becoming more important. When those flows are healthy, you really want to own that currency. When the flows start to get extreme, positioning's extreme and, and different dynamics are starting to turn or become unhealthy beneath the surface, that's where your warning signs are and you start to need to get out because that, that flow or that trending dynamic is probably starting to become quite unhealthy. You know? And so it's learning to follow the money a lot more is, is becoming an increasingly more important aspect of say an investor's toolbox Um, Then a lot of the older ways and even the way most people are trained, like in economics, for example, with some form of equilibrium type thinking. Right. But even there in the conventional economic sort of paradigms are more uh, optimized and hyper attuned to conditions that we've experienced for the last 60, 70 years. Right not the ones that we're in and going into, right? And so we need more of a systems-based understanding of how the world works, like the world is an ecological sort of adaptive system. Um, and we need to be more attuned to, well, where is that, the money actually moving? How's the money moving? Where's the flows going to? What's it concentrating into and why and, and where not? And when do those flows start to weaken or the liquidity conditions becoming problematic in certain markets, which might suggest the beginnings of a potential change in the way money moves and therefore a change in trend of those different markets. Um, You know what I mean? And even the old school sort of leading indicators of growth and inflation, for example, still useful. And you still want to have them in your toolbox, but if we're getting into a more of a uh, disaggregated type world, instead of more challenging conditions, even they start to fade a little bit in prominence you know because you've got so many different cross currents starting to occur and so your lens needs to be a little bit more focused on following the money basically capital flows and and you know looking more and more at you know stocks or even commodities or through more of a currency type analytic lens uh, or at least adding that sort of a framework to your toolbox as well to be able to sort of make sense of what's happening identify risk and um you know identify opportunities etc and so that's the direction to a solution right um but at the same time the problem with that is that it's not like you can just pull up a bloomberg ticker on you know xyz flows or liquidity conditions under any given market or you know what i mean so there's a there's a variety of work that you need to do to start to evolve practical and useful solutions to those sorts of problems right um which you know for the last, like 20 years ago when i started to get interested in the world and you know i'm learning about history and credit cycles in the past and then i'm waking up and going uh-oh <laughs> i'm coming into my time as a potential investment manager in the future when we've probably got the mother of all in uh, you know credit cycles in history and it was it was quite extreme back then and we're now 20 years later and it's just bonkers right you know how do you navigate an environment on the on the other side or in a credit saturated environment that is prone to all sorts of problems because things have just gone too extreme you know and even um, poor poor behavior is, is rewarded you know so for the last 15 20 years the key message that mark the, the way the system is operated and even policymakers have engendered this is that if you leverage up to the hilt whether it's in property or in pick a market or whatever then you're going to actually get massively rewarded right but if you be somewhat prudent and you know uh, wise according to old school wisdom principles where you're making time a friend as opposed to an enemy yeah. And you're not necessarily just leveraging to the hilt and buying every dip, you know, in picking asset class. You're going to be left behind, punished, and even completely, you know, you're not going to have a business. You're not going to have a job. Or you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so even the incentives towards rewarding foolishness and, in, and wisdom, for example, at least relative to all of historic experience, flipped on its head, right? And so, you know, we've got a bit of a sick system and you can argue that we always have six different versions of six systems but we've actually had you know relative to history an amazingly uh, bullish set of different factors coming into creating an amazingly uh, or at least what appears to be a very prosperous 50 years you know leading up to you know the turn of this century or even up till now in a way um but where the, the bill is catching up, you know, and, and potentially, you know, just leveraging up and buying every single dip in everything that moves um, is potentially about to not be rewarded anymore because all of those confluence of tailwinds that have supported that sort of behavior. And then the policy that's incentivized it even further is starting to become, you know, excessively saturated in effect. Um, in, and inability to act and so and so the only solution there is to start to focus more on analyzing defining and then following the money and trying to be able to identify healthy conditions or unhealthy conditions under any given market or asset class or region um, and learn how to see the the telltale signs of excesses uh, or you know weakening underpinnings to those capital flows and movements and and taking a systems perspective to, to really try, being able to triangulate, well, why is this money behaving in this particular manner, you know, to, to get sure. a broader understanding of the functional logic of how things are happening. So you can be better placed to recognize change when it's happening, when it's significant moving forward. And these are, in some ways, it sounds like common sense, but they're actually very profoundly different paradigms to how most people are trained or brought up in this world especially if you've gone through a conventional education or institutional setting or system you know um but yeah i'm sure someone has better solutions to all of this these are just my least bad approaches to trying to wrestle with all of these things you know um
0: yeah yeah, no, that makes sense. And you know, one thing that you know that that does uh, differentiate your process from, I guess, a conventional manager, as you mentioned, is applying ideas of complex systems and systems thinking um, into your investment framework. And so, uh, to that end, what are some reference sources or books or materials or resources that you would recommend studying in order to build such a framework? I'm guessing the first go-to is going to be like Jay Forrester's um, books, but but you know what what are your favorite reads um when it comes to systems thinking
1: um so there's three books i suggest people start out with um the first two kind of teach you how to think in more stable system environments right and they're actually written as novels they are written they're more business books um uh, they're quite simple but they all you know anyway they're quite profound everyone I've ever recommended them to have have been grateful for actually taking the time to read them because they apply to not more situations in life than, than just what we're talking about. Uh Um, So they're both written by a man called uh, Eli Goldratt. Um, And the first book is called the goal. And the second book, the sequel to that is called it's not luck. Right. The first book is quite profound and introduces you to a lot of very important principles and concepts. The second book is really paradigm shifting because it starts to to teach you how to um, analyze complex situations, problem solve in complex environments, systematically engineer breakthrough solutions in complex environments, basically, Um, teaches you how to think, really. Um, And so Those two books on the one hand, the third book might even be out of print, but you can usually get it secondhand. I I don't know. I haven't looked recently, but in terms of a really simple book with a lot of analogy that people can understand and some practical principles that um, can be applied to many other areas of life. It's actually a business book. It's called uh, Surfing the Edge of Chaos. Uh, it was probably published like twenty years ago or something, and it's written by uh, a group of people. The first author off the list is uh, Pascal P. A. S. C. A. L. E. Uh, and a variety of others. Really simple read book, easy to understand business book, but it introduces you to the concept of emergence, right? And chaos, chaotic systems, complex systems, some of the difference and how you how you lead organizations through. Different circumstances and some key principles. And so that's a great crash course on that whole concept of emergent phenomena and how things evolve and adapt. Um, Put those three books together, and that's like perfect grounding and launching point, you know, for starting to head down this pathway. And just reading those three books alone, um, you know, that'll be an ace up your sleeve in whatever business you walk into or career path you go into um they're they're really quite profound in some of the things that they teach and and instruct you and like once you've read them you'll you know what i mean by that Uh, but that's probably the best beginning and they're actually very easy to read uh, because they're both kind of especially the gold rat ones they're literally written as novels they're not written as textbooks um, but they're teaching novels basically Uh, yeah yeah and so um you know
0: i guess uh on the flip side of this, you know, how what sort of quantitative or technical skill set would you need to build in order to apply you know, such a framework? You know, simply because when you think of chaos theory, you know, it's very easy to jump into some advanced physics.
1: Yeah. And, well, the good thing about all of this is, well, good thing, bad thing, and what I'm about to say might be might be my perspective birthed out of my own limitations, right? I, uh, now, one of the first things I, my dad's an engineer, um, you know, two plus two in his world always equals four, right? Because you, you don't have thinking participants as key variables in yeah. his systems that he needs to engineer within. You know, if you build a bridge, whatever the, the natural laws of physics and science and, and whatever prevail, two plus two always equals four. You can pretty much build a bridge with all of those natural laws that are constant as soon as you bring in thinking participants, right? Two plus two, most of the time it will equal four. But you know, sometimes it'll equal six. And yeah. other times, in other contexts and other system structures it will equal minus three, right? And so when you induce, it will introduce thinking participants, there's-
0: reflexivity as Soros is talked about, right?
1: Yeah, so on the one hand, so from a maths perspective, it gets so complex that even the most complex super quantum computers just are not going to be able to handle it, right? On the other hand, it kind of makes it so simple because like, people are just not mathematically driven beings, right? Um, they're, they're behaviorally driven, right? And so you need to understand what drives people. And even studying things like leadership can... And psychology and things like that will be more useful to you than the complexities of maths now having said this this is where and, and so in all of my studying of people and societies and histories and markets and banking systems and, and the way all of that works the most and data especially the most profound things are usually the most simple you know and normally they're so simple that I would never have deductively figured them out only that I just stumbled across them trying to do something else and going, Oh, stuff me. That's actually what unlocks this, you you know? Um, But there's a counterintuitive dynamic that kind of causes like, you just won't deductively figure it out. It's like, you've got to pursue a deductive understanding of the world at the same time as an inductive sort of systems analysis type way of approaching it. And then working To reconcile them, you know, one of the things we learn from natural systems is there's no such thing as complexity or there's no contradiction right as soon as you think you see contradiction, all that means is you just don't understand that system or that reality well enough. Right, and that applies in all things I find. um, Especially in understanding the world and so if you start to identify contradiction in your own thinking or analysis or people or in the world or what's happening, it just means slow down you know they're not crazy or it's not crazy even though it appears like that or it's not actually like contradiction doesn't exist in reality right just a misunderstanding about reality is tends to be the recurrent lesson and so we that just is a red flag to have to dig deeper um you know and so by taking all of that very seriously the other thing you realize is that you know Dad's an engineer. You know, I've known lots of programmers. I've known all sorts of different people, scientists, different walks of life, some amazingly smart people out there, right? And if you're running a business or you're managing a team, half the time you're going to have skill sets in your team that are way beyond your intellectual or you're just not trained in those spheres, right? You're not an aeronautical engineer. You're not an advanced programmer. You're not a whatever. But can you still lead that team? Absolutely, you can. You know? And what's the common denominator in every single transaction that occurs in this world, which is basically, you know, when we're studying markets and economics, we're really studying transactions and behavior and all of this. But the common den- denominator always is people. Right? And so you can develop an edge in any situation if you understand the people denominator better than most. Right? So I have tended to drive into that heavily and so if you can walk into a room like with three engineers right you might not have a clue about they may as well be talking chinese right but you can what you can do is go this guy is full of pride you know this guy's insecure he's actually be at He's lying about whatever this guy is pretty legit this guy's humble that has all the hallmarks of sincerity and when he talks like You know, you can see who's full of it, who's not, who you should be listening to, who's capable, who's not. And then you can double check it with some others anyway. Like there's, But your key to unlocking that is in the people, understanding people and behavior and psychology. And it's the same in markets, you know, and it's the same in what drives money and movement of money. And because, you know, the whole point of a market or economic system is to basically solve problems so we can all live and thrive, basically. different expressions of what that means you know and so getting too heavy with maths is actually going to stuff you up i would suggest having said that taking some of the behavioral lessons you learn and then going to an advanced computer programming person and saying to him or her hey here's the concept and here's what i understand about how this roughly works can you go and take all of this data and model it and do this and that and you know they'll probably come up with a much better solution but they would, never would have seen it in themselves because they don't have this broader view you know what i mean and so um it's very from where i sit and what i do and what i see is effective um you don't really need anything beyond primary school maths right or maybe middle school, early high school math. Like you, you just don't need to be that complicated. And if you really need anything more advanced than that to understand the world, um, look, I don't know. Like, but at the same time, I'm not exactly, I'm not, so I don't know whether I'm talking out of my limitations of not being, uh, you know, having spent a lot of time going into advanced maths and this and that and whatever. Yeah. Um, but the solutions I've arrived at are very much behavioral, psychological, people-driven, societal-driven, you know, an individual, you know, everything about a person says something about them, right? And you can triangulate a lot, you know, in the same principle. And, but it gets even easier when you're starting to talk about groups of people, right? You know, they become much more unfortunately a little bit more primal in a sense when they start to aggregate um, and IQ usually goes out the window past the point and you know like and so just it becomes really ridiculous you're just watching the pendulum swing of emotion going from one extreme to the other you know when you get a big enough group um, and because mood can de- de- define so much your mood will define how you perceive things so if some event happens in the world but you're in a bad mood you'll perceive that negatively and then you'll price that and act off that negative in a market. If your mood is really optimistic, you can take on the world, do anything, whatever, positive, something happens, the same event, even if it's the most negative thing in the world, you'll still see it through a positive perception or positive lens. So it's the perception that's more important than the the actual event, you know, so it's not the event in itself. It's the perception of the event that has the greater impact. Especially when you're talking about markets and societies and, and how the world works and what actually drives behavior and et cetera, et cetera. Um anyway, I, I don't know whether you know, Yeah, that didn't answer my question. Simple so, questions, you know, I, I don't know. They don't really have many simple answers, unfortunately. I, I wish yeah, they did. No,
0: it's uh it's 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 a very interesting framework. And you know, previously you discussed looking through individual stocks like Apple through the lens of the way you would analyze the currency. And so could you also explain, you know, just with, you know, other examples, how would you take the understanding of the systems thinking framework and directly apply it to trading or investing? Could you um, sort of give an example of how you would do that?
1: So, well, I've spent 15 years trying to evolve those tools and frameworks. You have a lot of
0: examples, I'm kidding. (laughs)
1: Well, yes. Um, now, how do you do that starting from scratch? Um,
0: well,
1: I, but but this I is an know. example. Could you
0: example? Could you give an example of how you know you started off with the systems thinking framework and you know, arrived at a trade idea?
1: Yeah. Um, well, we'll say that that evolved over twenty years. But I also was fortunate enough to have a mentor in that space. Um, Who's just world class in that complex systems analysis and problem solving framework? The only thing is, he never applied it to global markets or economies. He he more applied it to um, you know logistics, supply chain systems, or business uh, businesses and all of this sort of thing. Um, I mean, my quarterly letters that I post on the website um, under managed portfolios, we we put we've got quarterly letters going back years, like all they are are examples of this sort of stuff. So how we apply flows and liquidity analysis or systems type thinking principles has a, a bit of a back un- undercurrent. The problem with systems thinking is that it's, uh, it it's not, it's not easy to capture in a conversation uh, or even in print, like it's a whole, we've got to train you into principles and, and then a whole world of how this actually applies, starting with smaller, simpler things and getting into more, you know, multitudinous, um, you know, dynamics. Uh, and so as a result, I tend to actually avoid talking about systems quite a lot, um, especially even in the research. You know, and in a sense, you know, I'm trying to describe a complex system with a lot of interrelationship, feedback loops, interdependencies, all of this sort of stuff in a very linear, word driven report. Like all of a sudden, we got a mismatch here of basically a spaghetti mess diagram and a lot of embedded knowledge and principles and expertise and understanding in that spaghetti mess diagram of interrelationships and what that system is. And you're trying to string that out into a series of words and some charts there's a mismatch there you know and then it's the same in conversation um and when you study those books if you do um that i've suggested you'll see exactly what i'm talking about or you'll start to glimpse exactly what i'm talking Mm -hmm. about now when it comes to underlying liquidity flows positioning different dimensions like that if you skim through some of our quarterly letters for the last two to three years there's just countless examples of all of that and how that applies and all of this sort of thing. Um, so other than like sharing my screen and starting to run through and actually teach and train, um, I, I don't know how to do this in probably the space of five minutes that we we kind of have. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but the, the disadvantage though for me doing this is that I'm I'm giving you you know, the, the end of 15 years of studying this and evolving a lot of different tools and frameworks, and I don't consider them all perfect, but they're definitely in that list of least bad solutions to these hard problems. Um, at the moment, you know, my business partner, like past the point, I'd probably make it all open source and just knock yourself out, go for it. But yeah, I, at the moment, I'm still running a business can't really do the open source routine just yet. Uh, um but yeah there, there's no i don't know what the easy path is i only know hard pathways <laughs> um, yeah no it's
0: uh it it is interesting and so i guess to wrap up the podcast now daniel could, could, could you sort of share with investors what should they be watching as we move through these interesting times what should they mostly be keeping their eyes on
1: um currency markets are probably the most important thing at the moment um because in a world like this, like a lot of things will start to happen first in currency markets uh, where you're seeing marginal shifts in how capital is moving and behaving in the world before it really starts to show up. Like the U S dollar has been strengthening for a while now. Right. And it couldn't break the previous sort of lows of the last six years, for example, even though, you know, we've had crazy fiscal and monetary policy, like we've never seen before. We've had this, this, everything else, like, you know, this it's the perfect storm for the popular understanding of the US dollar that it should be just toast, right? But yet it couldn't even knock out the lows the last six years. You know, that's a sign of inherent strength at a structural level, even though we don't understand it. Why can't the system move in a way where that gives way? Well, maybe we don't understand something about the system. And a lot of what we don't understand about the system is the monetary and banking system, you know, that causes all this liquidity and all of this sort of stuff, you know, and the Euro dollar components of it all. And what we actually have is a backdrop of an impaired globalized financial system that has kind of been limping along through these sub cycles of little reflationary growth, but overall it's impaired. Right. And more recently we've been sort of going back through a gust of tightening in that broader system you know and so we've been also that started to manifest in a tightening us dollar against most things right and you know even at the beginning of the year all of a sudden we're seeing you know like flows into switzerland for example which is a bit of a hallmark of you know and they're even recently the exodus out of europe has just been very rapid and very pronounced you know um And so just keeping an eye on currency markets because they'll tend to look through, anticipate, discount, you know, some of the stuff and the squeezes in different commodities, which can be quite deceiving, you know, like inflation expectations in bond markets are rallying in sympathy with the commodity price squeezes that we're seeing. But the second, third order effects of what we're seeing in a lot of the world are incredibly deflationary in nature, you know, which is why we're seeing the early signs of a potential deflationary shock brewing as we speak, you know. But everyone's distracted with rising commodity prices and even break even inflation expectations, and and also lagging inflation um, data sets such as the CPI, for example, that are still all the way up there, you know. Um, and so it's trying to understand the world through a deeper first principles sort of basis, through a bit of a systems lens thinking about second and third order effects instead of just first order superficiality, you know? Um, but yeah, keeping a bit more of a focus on, on currency markets, probably keep you in good stead because what they can signal are shifts in character, like money will move before things happen, usually. Um, and so in these sorts of environments, paying attention to what the currency markets are kind of telling us or not telling us or confirming or not confirming, can be pretty, pretty important um, to, to navigating all of this well. But problem is there is like, there's no simple answer or way to doing that. Like that can take a bit of experience to, to <laughs> form right perspective and understandings, you know, it's, it's not easy. And then even when you have the experience, it's a tough job. Like it's pretty complex out there. <laughs> I I struggle, you know, and I've been obsessively trying to do this for 20 years and and I've got a lot of tricks and techniques, but it's still not easy, you know? Um, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome having you on the podcast. I learned a lot. I'm I'm definitely going to check out those books that you recommended on systems thinking for sure. And so once again, thank you so much for being on.
1: Yeah, not a problem. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.